from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Harvey Garver on August 17, 2020. Harvey is a retired engineer and author of What Comes After Nations. In the interview, Harvey provides a very good explanation on the Baha'i concept of progressive revelation, which is the basis for his book, What Comes After Nations. I started the interview by asking Harvey where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. Well, when I grew up, I grew up in a town in northwest Illinois, which is about 50,000 people, and I, we lived on the outskirts of it. My parents and their families had moved from Nebraska to Rock Island, Illinois, and there were three sisters that brought all their families together, and we lived fairly closely in Rock Island, Illinois. I grew up in a very stable, loving family. I had one sister. And we were part of an extended family that included aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents. My parents started out taking me to Methodist church. And then when I was a teenager, they changed to a Presbyterian church. And then when I married my wife, she came from a family that went to Lutheran churches. So we got married in a Lutheran church. And I we attended Lutheran churches for the rest of my life until I became a Baha'i in 2002. So Harvey, why don't you tell us your spiritual journey that took you from growing up as a Methodist as a young man to becoming a Baha'i? Well, it was an interesting journey. Through all of it, uh, even though I was dissatisfied or not really feeling great in Christian churches, I always believed in God. And I always believed in Jesus, but I had a sense that there was something missing. There were apparent contradictions between the Old Testament and the New Testament that kind of perplexed me. And it raised a little bit of doubt or, you know, something didn't seem right. And when there's contradictions like that, it's hard to develop a really deep faith in anything. And one of the things that bothered me was in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it's written that, And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. And I could understand that, but in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was quoted as saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And those things kind of puzzled me, not at a high level, but, you know, they were always in the back of my mind is, how could all of this be in the same Bible? So there was a little bit of doubt, confusion, 
or things which kind of were like a veil between me and really understanding what was going on. But, you know, nevertheless, we went to church. We had two children, and we dutifully took them to Sunday school and helped them go through confirmation classes. But that was about the extent of our participation. And then after our children grew up, had their families, I slowly fell even further away from a what you would call a church-going Christian. You know, I just went on and on, and I gradually quit going to church much more. But even all of that time, you know, there was it's interesting. We Baha'is have this, what I'll call the principle of oneness, where we believe that there's the oneness of God, there's only one God, and there's the oneness of religion, there's only one religion, and there's only one race, the human race. Well, as I look back at my church-going days in Lutheran churches, I had a oneness principle also. But it was I believed in the oneness of God, there's only one God, and I believed in the oneness of the Christian church, but that was more like the church I was attending. And then when I attended the church, it was for one hour on Sunday, and I gave them one dollar. So a way to look at it, that was kind of a oneness principle. But through all of it, I never even came close to believing or losing my belief in God or my belief that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus was the Son of God, and he died on that cross to save us all from our sins. I never lost faith in that, never even questioned any of it. And along at the same time, you know, the Christian church services and sermons encouraged us to be a better person and somewhat vaguely discuss going to heaven. But through it all, the, the sermons and the other discussions that we had, it didn't really help to develop my spirituality, and I just fell away from it. But then what was really interesting for me was after a decade or two of not going to church at all, I guess I would say a miracle occurred for me. Even though I had been not attending church, looking back, I don't think I was a seeker. I wasn't seeking to find something like a lot of other people do or who go from one church to one organization to another looking for something. I wasn't doing that. I was just passively getting on with my life. But one Saturday morning, back in 2002, I was eating breakfast and reading the newspaper, and there was an interesting letter to the editor that caught my eye. It was like a magnet. And the article was all about the innate goodness of men. And it was so interesting that I decided that I wanted to talk to the author. So I um, searched through the phone book back in 2002, that's what we did. A lot of younger people don't know what a phone book is now. But anyhow, I found the author, I called her, and the rest is history. Six months later, I signed a declaration card and became a Baha'i. So it was an interesting experience. Sometimes I feel like I wasn't really seeking, but the Baha'i faith found me. <laughs> I had never heard of it, at least Consciously, I had never heard of the Baha'i faith, but when I found out about it, it, it was like a magnet, and I really spent a lot of time becoming a Baha'i. 
So what was it about the Baha'i faith that attracted you to learn more about it? Well, it kind of fit my aptitudes, I, I guess I would say. Back in 2002, we were living here in Sarasota, Florida, and I had been retired for eight years. And my wife and I were living here in Sarasota, and we joy, enjoyed all of the culture and beach activities. I was a busy golfer playing golf three times a week. We had a lot of friends, and like we all believed that Sarasota was paradise. But almost immediately, when I found out about the Baha'i faith, the, the teachings of Baha'u'llah had an impact on my life. And instead of playing golf three times a week, I wanted to learn more and more about Baha'u'llah's revealed teachings. I wanted to learn all I could about God and our relationship with him. I learned that God's essence is a spiritual entity, that he is unknowable, he's all-powerful, and he created the universe and each of us out of love. And I began to study how God, a spiritual entity, which is, communicates his will to us humans on planet Earth. And that's quite an interesting process because how does something that's purely spiritual communicate with us humans who are mostly physical? What I learned in my readings and research and the discussions I had with other Baha'is was that God continually sends manifestations of himself to educate us. And that previously we had known these manifestations as Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, and Zoroaster. And then back in the mid-1800s, God sent the Bab and Baha'u'llah as his manifestations to guide and direct us to follow his will. And the nice thing about it was when I became a Baha'i, I was welcomed with open arms by so many people who wanted to help me learn about the teachings of Baha'u'llah. And I, I attended weekly firesides, 19-day feasts, and many other meetings. And then after a while, I was elected to the local spiritual assembly and attended their bi-weekly meetings. What is a local spiritual assembly? Well, I'll talk about it later, but what it is, a local spiritual assembly is like an administrative organization for us Baha'is in Sarasota County. And there are usually local spiritual assemblies that kind of organize Baha'i activities in cities or areas where there are at least nine Baha'is. And I, I would like to talk a lot more about that near the end of, of this discussion. And then they started talking about study circles, which... And then shortly thereafter, I began studying Rui Book One, which is the first book in a long series. And afterwards, I completed all the books from one through seven and eight. And, and as I learned about Baha'u'llah and other re revealed religions, it just had an immediate impact on me. You know, I was educated as an engineer, and I had a 35-year wonderful career as an engineer. But I also enjoyed studying about history. I was always been interested in history. In fact, when I retired, one of the things that I did for the first six months of my retirement was I decided to study all about the um, revolution and how this country and the colonies broke away from England. 
and I just enjoyed history so much. I read all the histories I could, and I read biographies of the leading parts. And one of the more interesting books that I read was the view of our revolution from the British side. And I read this really interesting book called Those Damn Yankees. <laughs> but anyhow, that's just to say, and one of the whole ideas that's so remarkable about the Baha'i faith is that it educates us about the fact that there's only one religion. Right away, they reinforce my thinkings about there's only one God, not many. And then I started hearing about what they call progressive revelation. And that's how God, when he sends these manifestations, a religion forms after each of them. You know, when Moses came, he became the founder of Judaism, and Muhammad was the founder of Islam. It gave religion a history. Because, you know, up until then, or even now, I can imagine that if you had a room where there was a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim, and they were talking, inside each of them would be saying, you know, I've got my religion and I don't need yours. Each of them would be saying that. That never made sense to me, and it really became building on my part to learn that there's only one religion, you know, and, and we Baha'is have this belief, which is, I think, really interesting. We all believe there's just one God, and we all believe there's just one religion that's been revealed progressively down through the ages, and there's only one race, the human race. And all of those things really appealed to me. So it kept reinforcing my beliefs and building on them. You know, I, when I first heard about the Baha'i faith up until then, I was perplexed by so many what I thought were con apparent contradictions between in the Old and New Testament. Immediately, the, the teachings of the Baha'i faith answered all those questions that I had. And in fact, one of the great things about it was the Baha'i faith answered questions that I hadn't even thought of. <laughs> and, and it was just so interesting. And I just gathered it all in and soaked it in like a sponge. One of the other things that was really interesting to me was, you know, I, I figured out why I believed in Jesus Christ all of that time. And it was based on conversations that I had with other Baha'is. I finally figured out in my own life there were three essential reasons why I always believed in Jesus Christ. And one of those was by the way he lived his life. I mean, it was just so beautiful. And the second one was because of his divine teaching. You know, when you look at the divine teachings of Jesus, it's hard to disagree with any of them. And then the third reason why I always believed in Jesus Christ was because of the impact that he had on individuals and society. Now I believe in Baha'u'llah for the same reasons, same three reasons, because of the way he lived his life, because of his divine teachings, and because of the impact that he has had on individuals and society. So I was always, you know, thinking about all the manifestations of God and the, and the way they have created history and the advance of unity. One of the other things about the Baha'i faith, I was intrigued by why the Baha'is use, they refer to 
all of those prophets as manifestations of God. And I was used to hearing, you know, talking about prophets uh, in, in each of those religions. But the word manifestation is much more, provides much more of an explanation about each of, you know, Moses and Jesus, Muhammad, Zoroaster, you name it. Because each of them manifested or revealed the words of God to the people that they visited. And then they also manifested, they demonstrated by their deeds, the attributes of God to the people that they visited. And then they also manifested or demonstrated how the creative power of the word of God can transform both individuals and society. So I fell in love with the word manifestation, so to speak. It just seems so much more appropriate than to call somebody a prophet. So, Harvey, you wrote What Comes After Nations, and I also noticed that you are a regular contributor to uh, the platform BahaiTeachings.org, which mm-hmm. provides a vehicle for individuals to share their personal perspectives and insights as they strive to implement the Baha'i teachings in their everyday lives. Did mm-hmm. you do any writing before you were a Baha'i? Well, Yes. In my 35 years of being an engineer in in various labs, you know, I started out developing new technology and things for the future. And so I was kind of gravitated that part of the engineering world. And quite often, the lab that I worked for coordinated their activities with other labs who were working on similar things. Quite often we had to put together a report that summarized all of this that we would then give to um, top management on something that we thought the foundation, technology foundation had been built and now it was time to move on to the next step of developing the technology. So I gravitated towards doing work like that and that grew and grew and grew. And so I did a lot of writing but never any kind of writing outside of your engineering discipline. You know, after I retired, but even when I was working, you know, being an engineer and working with science and equations and all of that sort of stuff, it's interesting and challenging and rewarding. But I always had a a desire to um, develop my artistic capability. While I was still working, I experimented and I... I took lessons and tried to become a a painter, and I took lessons on how to learn to sketch, and I was a dismal failure in in all of that. I could not imagine standing in front of an easel for more than about 10 minutes painting, so that wasn't for me. And then I tried leaded and cut glass, and I tried a couple other things, but um, I never found a way to express myself artistically and it wasn't until I retired and I became a Baha'i faith that as part of our sacred duty to teach the faith I decided I started writing short booklets and other things uh, about the Baha'i faith and some particular aspect of it and I just kept doing more and more of that until when I started my personal research project it wound up with writing the book. So let's talk about the book. So the book is called What Comes After Nations. So what inspired you to write on this topic about what comes after nations? 
I became so energized reading and studying and investigating all of the manifestations of God and the basic Baha'i teachings of progressive revelation. And I did, I started a personal research project where I just decided I was going to study Baha'i writings. The challenge that I started out with was, you know, the whole idea is that these manifestations of God educate us humans. And as a result of that education, we can increase our capabilities and they teach us to how to live a better life, how to stay clean. You know, the Christian beliefs always had something that said cleanliness is next to godliness. And I kept reading how these manifestations had impacted society and individuals and transformed them. So I decided I'm going to do some research before I decided to do the research and, and what to do with it, I uh, read something by, I think it was Abdu'l-Bahá that started. And who's Abdu'l-Bahá? Abdu'l-Bahá, thank you, was the uh, eldest son of Baha'u'lláh to avoid a problem that had been, that occurred with all of the previous religions from the time of Adam to the Bab in 1844, each of the followers of those manifestations taught people and helped them learn and to become builders of a, of a society with expanded unity and the advanced civilization. And, and one of the things that Abdu'l-Bahá said was that Religions and manifestations in the Eastern world progressed sooner than the Western religions, so to speak, meaning Islam, Judaism, and, and Christianity. Of course, they're not really from the West. All of the religions, manifestations who produced those were from the East. So when I knew that the um, spirituality of the people in the East build up quicker and sooner than the West, I decided to look at the study and study what happened after Krishna came, Buddha, and Zoroaster. So I wanted to study how they transformed society. So what I did was I went to library books and read a lot about the history before the manifestations of God appeared and how civilizations and history and how the world changed after they appeared. Sure enough, when I studied Krishna and Buddha and Zoroaster, they essentially came to a group of people who were very primitive. You know, if you look at the history of humankind, we started out in the Stone Age, and then we began to become wonders, gatherers, and, and we wandered around following wild animals and gathering things to eat. And it was, that went on for millions of years until the, what's called the Neolithic Age started around seven, eight, nine thousand years before Jesus. And that's when a dramatic change in the lifestyle of us humans 
we had previously, we walked around and were following tribes in our lifestyle, or following wild animals, and our lifestyles was not too much different than what the animals were. Well, a dramatic change occurred in what's called the Neolithic Age from about eight or 9,000 BCE to say 3,000. And that's that we humans started to become primitive farmers. So instead of following wild animals around, we settled down and became primitive farmers. And so one of the things, you know, when you look at the various manifestations, they, they came into a society that was primitive, certainly not advanced, especially with uh, Krishna and Zoroaster and Buddha. When they provided the teachings of God, a religion was established and their followers developed great society. After Krishna appeared in northern India, the Harappan civilization occurred. They developed two and three story buildings. They had a, a major civilization with trading and economic and other things occurring. There were two cities which had laid out streets and avenues perpendicular to each other. They had a central water supply. They had an underground sewage system and all kinds of things which really demonstrate for me the advances that were made as a result of Krishna's teaching. And other societies like, uh, well, pick the Buddha society. You know, the interesting thing about Buddha was that he came into India in a country which was in the 500 BCE or something like that, which was almost all Hindu. So a certain extent, there were some settlements, there were some small cities and things like that. But when an empire started to develop in India, the um, empire became was reached its pinnacle under an emperor no, known as Asurka, and he developed an empire, mostly by force, military force, that spread all across India. And they had great advances in labor and trade and arts and built magnificent buildings. So there's no doubt about it that a, a transformation occurred in both the individuals and in society in general. It was such great demonstrations of how progressive revelation has increased unity and advanced civilization down through the ages. So to me, that was all, it just was so rewarding to understand, yeah, what the Baha'is teach really is true. It really did happen. And you know, we're all familiar with Moses and how the Jews had been prisoners and slaves in Egypt for two or 300 years. And when Moses came, he led the Jews to escape from Egypt, go across the Red Sea and into Canaan, which, you know, present day Israel. And Moses revealed the 10 commandments dietary laws and other laws, which the Jews had difficulty in accepting. But, you know, for me, one of the best examples of how the teachings of God help all of us is if you look at the Ten Commandments, it's kind of, I divide it up into at least two parts. One is the first three commandments are all about our relationship with God. 
and we should make no graven images, have no other gods. And he also said in the others, he gave us rules on how the Jews could progress and build a society. Because, you know, they had been slaves, and, who, you know, we have in this country, we know how bad the slave situation was before the Civil War. Well, the Jews went through something similar to that. And so when Moses revealed the Ten Commandments, which include things like honor your father and mother, do not go after the material things of other people, he gave us all kinds of rules that enabled the Jews to first build a, a loose federation of 12 tribes. And then when they were confronted with a foreign enemy during the early part of the Stone Age, under King Saul, they united into a more centralized form of government as opposed to a loose federation of 12 tribes. You know, they repelled the borders and eventually they built the most powerful empire in that part of the world at that time. You know, if you've read the Old Testament, people are familiar with how under kings David and Solomon, the empire of, of the Jews was just all impressive. So that's one more example of how the teachings of God can advance unity and advance the cause of civilizations. And of course, Jesus even is, is more spectacular. When Jesus came, the Jews were living in a country on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And they had progressed from what the Jews were when they first moved into Canaan. And, you know, they were part of the Roman Empire. They had police forces and military, and they even had tax collectors. So, you know, they had progressed. But when Jesus came, he taught, you know, we should love everybody as God loves us. All of his teachings in the New Testament, you know, are oriented towards transforming individuals and society. And if you look what happened, look what happened when Jesus' followers followed his teachings and spread Christianity into the Roman Empire. Magnificent things happened. For one thing, they established Christian churches in the empire, and Christianity became accepted after initially being persecuted. And then when it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, it became a, a unifying force in the Roman Empire. And in fact, it almost became a threat to the emperor. But what happened then was after a couple hundred years, you know, the, uh, the barbarians from the north, the Huns, the Goths, the uh, Franks, all came down and tried to invade and conquer the Roman Empire. And they did. But one of the interesting things happened was that the message of Christianity was so strong and so potent. And Jesus' teachings about redemption and everything else were so appealing that all of the barbarians, with hardly any exceptions, gave up their pagan gods and became Christian. To me, that's a most amazing miracle, how religion can unify and advance and transform people. And of course, we are, I think almost all of us are familiar with the fact that Christianity, as the centuries went on, became a unifying force in all of Europe. And eventually we all familiar with the 15th century Renaissance when Christian leaders in the churches created the Renaissance, which produced great 
leaders and advances in in uh, in the arts and architecture, and we're all familiar with names like uh, Da Vinci and Galileo and all of those guys produced such magnificent art and architectures, and they were all Christians. It's just one demonstration after another of how Jesus revealed religion transforms society. And perhaps one of the more spectacular ones, at least for me, is what Muhammad did. Muhammad, I think, was born in 570, 570 years after Jesus, and he appeared in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, we all know the Arabian Peninsula is mostly desert, <laughs> and it's got a few scattered towns, but it's a dry, difficult community. And when Muhammad appeared, and he came into a region where the tribes were barbaric, they buried their daughters because they wanted sons, they buried their daughters in the sand. And, and what Muhammad did and what happened to him was he lived in Mecca. Mecca was a center of pagan tribes who came there to worship their pagan gods. And Muhammad was born into that society. But there were caves in the mountains that surrounded Mecca. And he used to go up into those caves and pray and meditate and things like that. And then finally the angel Gabriel started revealing a message to him. All of the revelations that Angel Gabriel gave to him are now recorded in their Quran. What happened after that is absolutely spectacular, because here's these group of barbarians who were living in the Arabian Peninsula, and they started following the teachings of Muhammad, and they developed the Arabic Islamic Empire, which is all based on the teachings of, of Muhammad. And that empire grew like a land-based tsunami. It spread to the west, to India. It spread to the east, all along the North African coast, along the Mediterranean, and up into Spain. It spread north into Europe and almost up to Austria. It was spectacular on how the great things that the Muslims did. They developed great buildings. They developed new kinds of art. They developed a new form of government, which incorporated things from the Byzantine and Greek and other regions in that area, all into one governmental system, which defined the power of the individual states and at the same time limited it. And it was all within the teachings of Muhammad. You know, and then they also developed Arabic numbering systems, which we still use today. They created algebra. There's probably a lot of kids in seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth grades that don't like that because they got to learn it. But the development of algebra was is a sensational and historic scientific achievement. You know, and they did that all within a few hundred years. Also, Harvey, wasn't Europe going through the Dark Ages when Islam was introduced to take Europe out of the Dark Ages into the Renaissance period? 
that's a really interesting thing. It's it's a it's a typical story of unintended consequences. Because what happened in the 10th century, and one of the things which is an illustration of how far Christians had fallen away from the teachings of Jesus, even though they were making great advancements, they had strayed a long way from the teachings of Jesus. And one of the things that happened was that the Muslims eventually gained control of Jerusalem. And so the Pope and there were three or four popes in about the 10th century that decided, hey, we Christians need to retake Jerusalem and have it under our control instead of those terrible Muslims. So about three or four popes organized four or five different crusades, which is a war, and they organized the kings and leaders in Europe to send these armies back to Jerusalem with the idea of conquering it and bringing it back under the control of Christianity. Well, the interesting thing is, none of those crusades worked, and the returning soldiers and camp followers and everybody else brought back these new advanced teachings to Christian Europe. One of the reasons Christians were able to develop the Renaissance that started in 1450 in Florence, Italy, was that they used this new information, which was new to them, even though it was ancient, and used that to re-educate themselves. In addition, the other thing that happened was that when Islam was over in the fast lane developing all these new sciences and advances, one of the leading educational centers was in Spain. And they had great libraries and they had great scientists and others there. They readily made available their teachings to European scholars. But as things progressed, the European Christians retook all of the Muslim educational and library institutions in Spain, and they used the old information. So all of that was like a rebirth for the Christians in Europe, which got them on the road to go to the Renaissance. So I'm speaking with Harvey Garver, who's a retired engineer and author of the book, What Comes After Nations. So Harvey, what is What Comes After Nations about? And uh, what do you want readers to get from the book after reading it? What it's all about is, it's a summary of my investigations that looked at history before and after these manifestations of God who appeared after Adam. You know, we Baha'is believe that Adam was a prophet or a manifestation of God, and the Christians, I think, place his time frame about 4,000 years before Jesus. So these six manifestations of God that I've been talking about, meaning Krishna, Zoroaster, Buddha, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad, all came in the years and centuries following Adam. We Baha'is look back upon those times as the age of prophecy, because one of the interesting things about each of the religions that appeared after those manifestations was that each of them had a prophecy or a tradition of prophecies 
about a time in the distant future when good would overcome evil and there would be peace and prosperity for all. Now, each of the religions has different ways of stating it because, you know, they came at different times. And so the words are from the traditions are appropriate for the times when they came. But there was about 6,000 years from Adam until 1844, which we Baha'is consider to be a pivotal year in the history of humankind. So we look back upon that 6,000 years as an age of prophecy or in honor of Adam, we refer to it as the, the Adamic age. And all of those years that were going on where civilization was advancing, they all were talking about the future. You know, one of the ways that uh, is most vivid to me is that in Christianity, when I was going to Christian churches, I don't know how many millions of times I read in the services the Lord's Prayer. And it, and it talks about when God's kingdom will be established on earth and his will be done as it is in heaven. So that was the way the Christians looked at it and verbalized it. And each of the others had similar ways to do that. At the same time, I was studying all these Baha'i teachings about the Bab and Baha'u'llah, and I'll go into that in a minute. I just decided, based on all of that, I would like to write a book as that way to develop my artistic capabilities. And by the way, one of the first things I did when I, before I wrote this book and put all my things into writing, I decided I needed to, to learn how to write. <laughs> so there's a, a website called great courses, I think it was, and I took one course that was 24 sessions long, and it was all entitled How to Write a Set. But anyhow, that's an aside. So I just decided I wanted to record all of that, and I did. After I built that foundation of how things had been occurring, I continued it in writing about the Baha'i teachings from the Bab and Baha'u'llah. So what's the significance of the title, What Comes After Nations? You know, that was one of the interesting things. When I started writing the book, there were things that I had to define. And one of the things that I had to define is, you know, we've been living in the age of nations for so long, we think they've been existing forever. And actually, the, the birth of nations came at the end of the Islamic Empire when certain parts of the empire started to become independent identities and independent areas, and it, it eventually grew to maturing in Europe. The definition that I used for a, a nation was a group of people who live within well-defined boundaries and have a common culture. That's my liberal definition of nation what I was going through those at 6,000 years is that when you look at how unity has increased, the building block for all forms of unity started in the Stone Age when a man and a woman and a child were a family. So the, the minimum amount of unity that I think we can describe is the family. Well, what happened down through all of those millions of years and everything else Unity spread from just a family to tribes. Tribes came together. They built small cities. 
And then this thing called empires developed. You know, I, I guess the best example of empires that I would like to use is in Persia, after Zoroaster came, there is a famous emperor who came and was in, his name was Darius the Great. And he built this Persian empire a few hundred years before Jesus, and it, it governed over 50 million people from India, across the Mideast, and over to Greece. So empires had a common thing. They were all, had an emperor, and the emperor ruled all over the empire because of his military force. It was a forced unity. And he collected taxes from everybody, and he used his military troops to keep everybody in line. Well, when the Arabic Islamic empire started, and the idea of nations, independent areas started growing, and then matured, that became the basis for what nations have become. With the Baha'i concept teachings, what we're learning is that even though the era of nations probably reached its peak of authority in the late 1800s and early 1900s, ever since the time of Baha'u'llah, many changes have been occurring, and there have been global entities which are taking away the power of individual nations as a result of Baha'u'llah's teachings and the creative energy that was released in the 1800s, we have these global entities which are, we believe, as Baha'is, are the next stage in the expansion of unity and civilization. In fact, while we Baha'is believe that our individual spiritual growth will continue forever, Baha'u'llah's dispensation is going to last for at least a thousand years before another manifestation of God comes. And when we Baha'is talk about creating God's kingdom on earth and the most great peace, which are similar things, we're talking about a global society. So what I was trying to do when I came up with the title of What Comes After Nation is to get across the point that nations as a form of unity is not an end-all solution. There's another solution that's coming beyond it, and that is a global society. And we see all kinds of results in the material world, how that has been occurring dramatically. I mean, it's just amazing about the things that have changed since Baha'u'llah was here. And he received his first revelation in, I think it was 1852, and Tremendous things have, have been happening ever since then. And they have all been impinging on nations' sovereignty as we move toward a global society. And all of these things, for me, really demonstrate the power of the creative word of God to make things happen. You know, if you go back to 1844, which was the pivotal year when we went from the previous age of prophecy to what we Baha'is refer to as the age of fulfillment, when all of those prophecies are going to be fulfilled, look at how the world has changed since 1844, 176 years or so. Back then, women could not vote. Since then, we have almost universal woman suffrage across the world. 
Back then, in 1844, slavery was in mainstream politics, as vividly demonstrated in this country. This country went to a war with itself to eliminate the evils of slavery. Since then, you know, when we look at the age of empires, the age of empires is over. We don't have empires anymore. We're in a middle part of the nation-building phase. With nations, we have what's called nationalism, which is almost like a religious devotion to our country. And we believe we have the best country and we should be independent and sovereign. That form of nationalism is great within a country because it unites everybody in the country. But the problem becomes when one country is next to another country, nationalism in the extreme has led to wars. And that's what caused World War I was the nationalism emotions. And that led to, I don't know, 10 million people being killed. The nationalism effort continued and World War II had 60 to 80 million people, all because of the evil forces of the feelings of nationalism. Nationalism is like a, a two-edged sword. On one hand, it unites the people within a country, but on the other hand, it leads to wars between countries. So when you look at how society has been working against the forces of nationalism, we see that in the early 1900s, there was the League of Nations was created to try to stop any further fighting like World War One, and, and then we had World War Two, and out of that came the United Nations. And even today, we have the European Union. So there's all of these governmental forces that are impinging on the, the sovereignty of each nation. On the other side of that is the problems that are becoming apparent like yes. climate change and the refugee crisis, all of these problems that are arising uh, require the coordination of nations and can't be solved by an individual nation. That's right, and, and including this pandemic. The whole idea of the pandemic is it's a global epidemic. What's happening is, as I review Baha'i teachings and other things, we are getting more and more global challenges to the idea of a nation being a sovereign force. And I remember reading someplace that said, as our challenges become bigger, speaking globally, our ability to solve them increases. The creative energy that's released with each manifestation of God is like the rays of the sun. The creative energy affects everybody. So I'm speaking with Harvey Garver, a retired engineer and author of What Comes After Nations. So Harvey, where can people find your book? You can go to my website, What Comes After Nations, all one word, dot com. What Comes After Nations dot com. When you go to that, you'll see on one of the pages that you can click on a link that will take you to Barnes and Noble. It will take you to Amazon, and it will take you to the U.S. Baha'i Bookstore. Well, Harvey Garver, thank you so much for taking this time to share your very interesting ideas about progressive revelation and the progress of civilization through religious revelation and the future of what comes after nations. Thank you so much, Harvey.
Thank you. It was enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Harvey Garber, author of What Comes After Nations. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website of BahaiPerspective.com and on the YouTube channel of Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website Baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.